and I want to invite you to continue worshiping with me as we study God's Word together. If you're not already there, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. And while you're turning there, I want you to think about what it means to, to really know a person. I want to suggest to you, if you want to really know a person, you need to know, you need to learn about their heart. For example, say if you wanted to really learn about me after the service, you go up to my dear wife, Holly, you could ask her my height, my eye color, my eating habits, my education, you could ask about my hobbies, my favorite sports teams, my sleeping habits, the books I'm currently reading, where I was born, all those sorts of things. You could ask all kinds of questions about me, and you might be able to maybe win at some Hobson Butoh trivia, if that were ever a thing, but that doesn't really mean you know me, does it? Knowing facts about a person doesn't necessarily mean you know the person. Most of you that know me, you know what I do. I'm one of the pastors here at PBC, given my life to ministry. You know what I do, preparing sermons, studying, praying, counseling, leading, all those sorts of things, but that doesn't mean you know a person either. To really, really know a person, you need to learn about their heart. I want to suggest to you that the same is true of Jesus. If you want to know who Jesus is, learn about His heart. I would ask you this morning, who is Jesus? There might be all sorts of different answers that pop into our heads. We could talk about His attributes. We could talk about His activity. We could talk about the miracles that He performed. We could talk about the words that He said. We could talk about the greatest work that He did on the cross. And all of those things would be certainly true. But what is true of Jesus' heart? It might surprise you to know that in all four Gospels, some 90-plus chapters about the life of and ministry, and work, and words of Jesus, there is only one place in all four Gospels where Jesus tells us about His heart. And that is our text in Matthew chapter 11. Just to remind you the context of this text before we read it together, the chapter began with Jesus sending out His disciples, and now He's teaching the crowd. This is teaching for everybody. And while He's teaching the crowds of people gathered around Him in Galilee, one um, messengers come from one John the Baptist and expressing the doubts of John the Baptist. And we watched as Jesus tenderly responded to the doubting John the Baptist in prison. And then last Sunday, as the chapter continued, we, we looked at Jesus respond, not to doubt, but to unbelief. And we heard the, the stern warnings of judgment for those who rejected the Messiah, even though He performed countless miracles in this region. But why does He respond in these ways? Why did Jesus respond with tenderness towards the doubting John the Baptist and, and toughness towards the rejecting people in Galilee? I believe the answer for us comes in our text this morning. The answer lies in the heart 
of Jesus Christ. Look with me in Matthew chapter 11. Let's read our passage together. In the passage that J.C. Ryle says, there are few passages in the four Gospels more important than this. Listen to what God's Word says. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And we can imagine Jesus ending that prayer and turning to those in the crowd listening to Him, and He says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you want to know who Jesus is, learn about his heart. With God's help, I want to ask and answer three questions from our text this morning. And just a word to those of you that might be following along using the outline provided for you in your bulletin, that is not correct. And so just crumple that up, throw it away, get a new sheet of paper if you're a note taker, and hopefully that'll help you follow along. So three questions about the heart of Jesus. Question number one, what is the heart? What is the heart? Jesus says in verse 29, I am gentle and lowly in heart. What does Jesus mean by heart? He certainly doesn't mean the blood-pumping organ in his chest cavity. The medical definition of the heart, it's not what Jesus is referring to. I also don't think he means what we often mean when we talk about heart. We will say, you know, I love you with all my heart, or I really have a heart for this or that. What we tend to mean when we use the word heart is our feelings. That's certainly part of what Jesus means, but, but biblically, uh, the, the Bible divides every human being into two pieces. There's two parts to every single one of you. You have the, the inner part, and you have the outer part. The outer part is what the Bible calls the, the body or sometimes the flesh. This is who you are on the outside. But the Bible uses many different words to describe who you are on the inside. Words like the, the self, the mind, the emotion, the soul, the spirit, the will. These are some of the terms that the Bible uses to describe who you are inside. But the main kind of summary word that encapsulates all of those terms is the Bible word heart. You want a really simple definition of the biblical term heart. It's who you are on the inside. Paul David Tripp says this, this term, the term heart, is used almost a thousand, in almost a thousand passages of Scripture. It's one of the most well-developed themes in all of the Bible. 
When the Bible uses the term heart, it means the, the causal core of your personhood. The heart is your directional system. The heart is your steering wheel. Dane Ortland, in a, a book called Gentle and Lowly, I'm going to quote from this a couple of times in the, in the sermon today. If you haven't read this, by the way, I strongly encourage you to grab a copy of the bookstall after the service and read it. Even if you read it gentle and slowly, as one of my friends says, read it. Dane Orland says this, When the Bible speaks of the heart, it is not speaking of our emotional life only, but of the central animating center of all we do. The heart is what gets us out of bed in the morning and what we daydream about as we drift off to sleep. It's our motivation headquarters. The heart in biblical terms is not part of who we are, but the center of who we are. The heart drives all we do. The heart is who we are. So it's no surprise then that Proverbs 4 verse 23 says, keep your heart or guard your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Your heart is who you are on the inside. It's, it's the driving wheel, the steering wheel for your personhood. It's what animates you. It's what drives you and compels you. It's why you behave as you behave or say what you say. It all flows from who you are on the inside. It's your heart. Now, apart from Christ... Our hearts, all of our hearts, are really bad. Just last night, um, I was with the kiddos uh, watching a trailer for the new season of The Mandalorian. If you haven't seen it, you need to watch The Mandalorian. It's a great show. And another trailer came up for a different show because YouTube likes to get you to watch ads for some reason. And so there's a, another movie or something there was a preview for. And uh, at some point in the, in the show, there was a clip where one of the moms says, to, the mom says to this kid, just follow your heart or do whatever your heart calls you to do. Now, that is fundamentally bad advice for every single one of us because the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You, dear friend, by nature are not gentle and lowly in heart. You are, Jeremiah would say, deceitful and wicked in heart. This is one of the reasons why when the Bible talks about conversion, it talks about heart surgery. Ezekiel talks about having a heart of stone that's replaced with a heart of flesh. That's what happened when you, when you became a follower of Jesus. God performed heart surgery in your life and took out that heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh. But even still, even as a follower of Jesus, we are tempted often to act out of that old sinful heart, aren't we? Well, this sermon, this text, is not about your heart. It's about the heart of Christ. So, question number two, what is the heart of Christ? What is Jesus' heart like? Now, remember, your heart is the steering wheel for the person. The heart is the control center 
of who you are. Your heart is, is who you are on the inside. It's the driving center of all that you do. What is the steering wheel for Jesus? What's the control center for Jesus? What drives Him to act the way that He does throughout this gospel, throughout the pages of Scripture? What is the heart of Christ? Look at verse 29. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Who is Jesus? Who is He really? He is gentle. The word translated gentle is used only three other times in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, same word, gentle. Meekness, we often have heard said, is, is strength under control. Jesus is meek at heart. He's gentle at heart. He's strong, but that strength is controlled. It's channeled to what is good and beautiful and true. In Matthew 21, verse 5, the word is used when it says, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. Gentle. He's He's humble. Jesus is not braggadocious. He's interested in you. The final place this word is used is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, when Peter admonishes wives to have a gentle and quiet spirit. Jesus says, my heart's like that. Gentle, nurturing, tender. Sometimes joke at our home that when the kids get hurt, they never want to come to dad for comfort. I'm the kind of one that goes, you're fine, but like his, his leg's broken. No, he'll be all right. Mom's the one that nurtures, that's tender, that comforts, and Jesus says, my heart's like that, gentle. G, uh, Dane Ortland summarizes that word gentle. He says, Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger, but open arms. He's gentle and he's lowly. The word translated lowly there in our Bibles is usually translated as, as humble or downcast. Humble or downcast. When you think of someone that's humble or downcast, perhaps you think of somebody kind of like their head bowed low, kind of maybe bad posture, and, and, and they're maybe kind of introverted, not going to insert themselves into a conversation, maybe really soft-spoken, maybe they talk, if they do talk, they talk a lot about, you know, how, how bad they are, how lowly they are. That's really not the idea of a humble person. I, I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. This is what I think we should think about when we think about Jesus being lowly. 
He's a cheerful, intelligent chap who takes a real interest in what you say to him. Is that what you think about when you think of Jesus? Again, Dane Ortland helpfully summarizes this. He says, the point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus. Do you believe that? When you think of Jesus, do you think the most approachable person in the universe? Or do you think stern, fierce, disappointed, angry, wrathful? That brings up a good question, perhaps that maybe some of you are asking. Can this really be Jesus' heart? What about His wrath? What about His anger against sin? We couldn't ignore that. In fact, we just looked at that last week. You just go up a few verses in Matthew chapter 11, and you'll see Jesus pronouncing judgment on those who reject Him. Can this really be Jesus' heart? If you continue... In Matthew's gospel, this is actually a major shift in the gospel because from chapter 12 onward, we're going to see that Jesus faces increasing opposition. Almost every chapter, the opposition just ratchets up. And you get all the way up to Matthew chapter 24, and Jesus speaks harsh, seemingly angry words of judgment to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're a bag of snakes. Harsh words. Can this really be the heart of Christ? When Jesus says He is gentle and lowly in heart, it does not mean that He no longer cares about justice, judgment, and wrath. But, but we need to be careful here. I want to make sure you get this, church. When Jesus is describing His heart in this text, He is not saying to us, this is how I sometimes behave. He is not saying, this is the way I sometimes feel. He is saying, this is what is most natural to me. This is my disposition. Yes, He sometimes responds in wrath and judgment and anger. And when Christ returns, He will come with eyes of flaming fire and a sword out of His mouth. Yes, but His disposition, His tendency, His inclination is mercy and grace. This is the message of the entire Bible, if we have eyes to see it. Consider with me one of the darkest books of the Bible, a book that we in God's providence began studying right as the shutdowns began in 2020. Many of you remember that when we walked through the book of Lamentations together. Our dear Cliff said to me after the sermon series was over, if Lamentations had been six chapters, I would have probably jumped off a bridge. It's just a dark book. It's hard. 
Why is it so dark? Because th this is a poem about suffering. God's people are going through unimaginable suffering, and Jeremiah the prophet crafts this poem recounting the sufferings of God's people. It's five chapters. Chapters 1, 2, and 4, and 5 are each 22 verses apiece. Very, very carefully designed poem. The chapter in the middle is three times as long as the other, the two on each side of it. 66 verses in chapter 3. So Jeremiah is drawing your attention to chapter 3 of Lamentations chapter 3. Perhaps you remember a couple of weeks ago I shared from that chapter about how God says His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This heart of God is seen in Lamentations 3. But right in the middle of Lamentations 3, the smack dab middle of the book, dead center, Lamentations 3, verse 33, listen to what God says about Himself, what Jeremiah says about God. He does not afflict from His heart or grieve the children of men. Do you see that? Even when God brings wrath, and He does, discipline, and He does, He does not from His heart afflict the children of men. In other words, that is not what is most natural to him. Many of us think our instinct is that God is just ready. He's got the lightning bolts always ready to go. And the scriptures tell us that that is not the heart of Christ. In their Reformed Systematic Theology, Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley write this. It's on the screen. I think this is helpful. God's wrath is a revelation of his divine nature. Nevertheless, we recognize that God's wrath is His strange work. Quoting from Isaiah 28, verse 21. The Bible says God is love, but never says God is wrath. God has wrath. The Bible never says God is wrath. Strictly speaking, wrath is not an attribute of God's nature, but it is, it is His holy justice against sin. God's nature is gentle and lowly and merciful and gracious. He responds to rejection and sin with wrath and judgment, but not from His heart. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way, God is a God that delights in mercy and judgment is His strange work. It's not what's natural to Him. If you're in this room, you're not a follower of Jesus. Let me plead with you in this moment. Jesus' heart is to welcome you and to save you. That's His heart. That's what's most natural to Him. What Jesus on instinct wants to do for you today, dear friend, is to invite you to Himself if you will but repent and believe the Christians in the room, let me just ask you, is this how you think of Jesus? Do you look at Him as gentle and lowly in heart? Perhaps for some of us in this room, one way we might need to respond to today's text is to repent for our small and misguided thoughts about Jesus. Let me ask a final question. 
about the heart of Christ. Why does this matter? In our text this morning, we have more than a statement about Jesus' heart. We also see Jesus' heart on display. I want you to look at the text with me. I want you to see three glorious truths that flow from what Jesus tells us about His heart. Because this is my heart, this is how I respond. First of all, Jesus wants to be known. Jesus wants to be known. Have you ever played a game called uh, Sardines? It's also sometimes called reverse hide-and-seek. The way you do it is rather than uh, one person counting and everybody goes to hide, one person hides and everybody else counts. That one person goes and they hide, and the, the goal is to find the best possible hiding place. Kids, listen up. You're getting some games to play here. Find the best possible hiding place, and then the longer you can stay hidden, the better. And once you find the, the, the person that's hiding, you go and you hide with them because you don't want to spoil it. And you want to hide the longest amount of time possible, and you keep going until the last person finally finds the person that went hiding, okay? Some of us think that God is like that. He's hiding from us. In fact, if you look at the text, you might think that that's what Jesus is saying. Look at Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Here you see God's sovereignty and salvation, don't you? We were saying about it earlier, His sovereign grace. Notice what Jesus is saying. Nobody knows Jesus unless the Son chooses to reveal Himself. The Father also hides the truth about Jesus from some and reveals it to others. Here's what this means practically. Dear brother, sister, friend, you would know nothing about Jesus unless God chose to reveal Himself to you. I wonder if you see that in the text and you think God's playing sardines. He's playing reverse hide and seek. He doesn't want to be found. He's hiding from us. Listen to me. When it comes to finding God, there are only two options. When it comes to finding God, there are really only two options. God could leave us to find Him on our own, or He could reveal Himself to some. Think about it for a second. What if God left us to find Him on our own, how many of us would find Him? Who would be like me, running around my house frantically looking for my water bottle when it's in my hand, right? Been there? Anybody? Listen, you would not find God. Read Romans 3. No one seeks after God. We're not even looking for Him. We don't even care. 
Read Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. No one would find God on their own. Nobody, period. So instead, we have a God that chooses to reveal Himself to some. And listen to me. I would rather trust the heart of God to reveal Himself to people than to trust our own ability to find Him. Jesus wants to be known. He wants you to know Him. Don't think of Jesus' heart as stingily restricting salvation to a few. He's gentle and lowly in heart. He's tender and accessible. He's outgoing and overflowing with love. You see in this prayer that Jesus and the Father, they're really bubbling over with love so that we might know God. Do you believe that Jesus really wants to be known? Say a word to the Christian parents in this room. As a Christian parent, one of my deepest and most agonizing fears is that my children would grow up to reject God. It's a terrifying thought. Some of you right now, you're dealing with that with your own kids, your own grandkids. It's a terrifying thought. Let me suggest something to you, perhaps, to consider. One of our missionaries suggested to us a couple of years ago, is it possible that God gave you those children because He wants them to know Him? What if God put these precious little ones in your life, mom and dad, because He drew you to Himself and He expects that you're going to point them to Him because He wants them to be known by Him? How does that change the way we interact with our kids? To put Christ in front of their eyes over and over and over again because God has given me these precious little ones so that they might know Him. Christians, think about your neighbors for a moment, your co-workers, people that you rub shoulders with day after day, week after week that don't know Jesus. Could it be that God placed you in their lives because He wants those people to know Him? Do you believe that God actually wants to be known? That's his heart. Why would he send? Why would the father send his son at all unless that was true? Jesus, because he is gently, gentle and lowly in heart, wants to be known. Second truth, flowing from Jesus' heart, Jesus wants you to come to him. Jesus wants you to come to Him. Like some of the ladies in this room, my wife was away on a women's retreat for the past few days, leaving me to care for my five children by myself. And I'm here, no broken bones, uh, nothing burned up or was broken. 
But it was, you know, it was hard at times. We survived. One particular night, my daughter, Phoebe, was feeling very sad. Now, I I told you earlier that the kids don't tend to come to me for comfort. I have only myself to blame for that, not the best comforter. But that night, there was no mom to go to. So little Phoebe settled for second best, and she came downstairs and told her dad that she was sad, and she said, Daddy, can you just give me a hug? Now, what she wanted in that moment was comfort from her father. And what I wanted in that moment was to hug my daughter and for her to want to receive affection from me. I wanted her to come to me. Now, I'm a sinful dad, and often there are times, just to be honest, when I'm tired or I've got something going on, and I'm less likely to want that to my own shame. Listen, if there are times when me, as a sinful dad, can take joy in my children coming to me, how much more does Jesus take joy when you come to Him? Look at the text. Look at what He's saying. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. Notice the simple invitation here. Jesus doesn't say, work. He doesn't say, do. He doesn't say, try. He doesn't say, labor. He doesn't say, strive. He doesn't say, agonize. He says, come. Maybe you say, well, you don't understand, Jesus. I can't, I can't come. I'm, I'm too angry, too anxious, I'm too apathetic, too bitter, complaining, covetous, doubtful, discontent, dishonest, disobedient, divisive, envious, fearful, forgetful. Jesus, I'm too given to gossip. I'm too greedy. I'm too hard-hearted and hateful. Jesus, I'm too hypocritical. I'm too ignorant. I'm too immoral. I'm too impatient. I'm too jealous. I'm too judgmental. I'm too lustful. I'm too proud. I'm too rebellious. I'm too selfish. I'm too self-righteous. I'm too sick. I'm too sore. I'm too tired. I'm too unthankful. I'm too weak. I'm too worldly. And Jesus says, I know. That's the only thing I'm asking you to bring to me. Don't you see the text? Look at what he says. The only thing that qualifies you to come is the very burden that you think he wants nothing to do with. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. He says, take that burden, whatever it is, Christian, and bring it to me. That's all I want. Christian, sinning Christian, you do not have to do penance before you come to Jesus. Isn't that what we do sometimes? Or is that just me? I mess up again, whatever the sin is, and I feel like I've got to like prove myself a little bit and behave for a little bit, and then I can come to Jesus. Sinning Christian, bring your burden of sin to Jesus. Suffering, weak, wounded, sore Christian, 
bring your suffering to Jesus. Pray to him. Go to him boldly, knowing how richly he loves you. He wants you to come to him. The final truth in the text, flowing from the heart of Christ, Jesus wants to give you rest. Jesus wants to give you rest. On August 6, 1930, a man named Joseph Crater had dinner with friends at a Manhattan restaurant, then stepped into a cab and was never seen or heard from again. Because he was a successful New York Supreme Court judge, his case drew a ton of attention. There was all, all sorts of theories. He'd been murdered or kidnapped or suicide, but there was really no evidence that could be conclusive in any direction. There was really only one piece of evidence that was ever found about Joseph Crater. Even 100 years almost later, one piece of evidence. After her husband's disappearance, his wife found cash-stuffed envelopes and a letter dated the day of his disappearance with a simple message, I am very weary, love, Joe. I wonder who in this room is very weary. Weary by circumstances. Life is hard. You're busy. You're tired. It seems like your life is just a carousel of one catastrophe after another. You're weary by the circumstances of life. Things aren't as they should be. You're not into a routine. You're not in your normal space. Things aren't right, and you're wearied by it. Maybe wearied by your suffering. I know that there are several dear ones in this room who you hurt just to walk in this room on Sunday. How much longer can I hurt? You're wearied by your sin. I can't seem to shake this. I can't seem to beat this. I've, I've failed again. Because Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart, Christian, He wants to give you rest. He wants to give you rest. And the rest that He gives, look at the text, you will find rest for your souls. This is bigger than just mere physical rest. This is soul rest. This is rest on the inside. This is what Augustine wrote about when he said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Him. Rest for the soul. Is that what you want today, dear friend? That's what you can find in Jesus. And I can assure you of this. He will get more joy than you if you come to him with your burden. This is his heart. This is what he wants to do. He wants to give you rest. It doesn't surprise you that Jesus gives rest by inviting you to share a yoke. By the way, we've got a picture on the screen for you. This is not an egg yoke. It's a yoke. This is a piece of machinery, a tool that was developed so that way two oxen or other animals could, could plow together and they share the load together. Yokes are by their nature supposed to make burdens easier to carry. 
If you're here and you're heavy burdened this morning, let me remind you that the cure for a heavy burden is not no burden, but the right burden. Here's the right burden. Yoke yourself to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. How is, how is Jesus' yoke easy? Jesus' commands are true. Whatever Jesus commands to us in His Word, it corresponds with reality. Jesus' commands are consistent. You don't wake up one day and, and the rules have changed. He's given us His Word. He tells us what He wants. Jesus' commands are clear. Jesus' commands are good. And to top it all off, as we follow Jesus' commands, who is it that we are yoked to but Jesus? Who better to share a burden with than Jesus? Resisting Jesus' yoke, dear friend, when He's trying to give you rest, is like resisting a life preserver when you're drowning. And yet... Even for this preacher, it's all too easy to resist the yoke of Jesus. It's been a busy month, busy October following an even busier November. This past week, the elders were able to share a retreat together in the Outer Banks, and it was a wonderful time together, but it was more of a work trip than a retreat. We had... Six meetings in the span of three days, two days. Most of those meetings were hours long. And all of those meetings led to more work for me on the other side of the meeting. And I'm weary. I know I've got a busy week this week and a busy week after that. I think between different trips and work trips and conferences and different things, I'm I'm not home more than I'm home the month of November. And so this morning, as I wake up for my morning run, it's a helpful time for me to think as I prepare to preach to you in the morning. I'm thinking about next Sunday sermon. Not because this one's not important, but because I know I don't know when I'm going to have time to think about next Sunday sermon. So I'm going to think about it right now. And as I'm thinking and play, praying and planning for that, I get a text from a dear friend uh, with the SBCV, Jeff Mingi, and Jeff says, a lot of pastors are burdened right now. A lot of pastors are discouraged. If you're feeling burdened, would you just let me know so I can pray for you? And it hit me as I was replying to that message. You can prepare a whole sermon about coming to Jesus who gives you rest and never do it. Dear Christian, you can listen to an entire sermon about coming to Jesus and finding rest and never do it. So I'm going to ask our musicians to come forward and I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and I'm going to have, if we can, a couple of minutes of guided prayer time for us to do it, to come to Jesus First of all, I'll just ask you, if you're in this room, you're not a follower of Jesus, would you receive Christ in this moment?
Don't work for him. Run to him. Come to him. And he will give you rest for your soul. So in this room, you're not a follower of Jesus. As we take some time to pray and prepare our hearts, would you come to him now in repentance and faith? If you're a follower of Jesus, would you pray for others that they might do that in this moment? if we're honest, I think what we need to do as followers of Jesus is we need to repent. We need to repent for the wrong thoughts we've had about Jesus. Do you think of Jesus as stern and harsh and unapproachable and disappointed, eternally disappointed in you, Christian? That's not the Jesus you find in the scriptures. And if that's the Jesus that you think of, the Jesus that you pray to, Tell him you're sorry for thinking wrongly about him. It's not who he is. And I would imagine for most of us, we are carrying heavy burdens. I don't know if it's circumstances, suffering, sin. You know the burden, friend. Have you brought it to Jesus? He wants to give you rest. Have you brought it down? Take a few moments now and bring it to Jesus. Rejoice in who you are. And may we find rest in you right now. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to stand and sing. We're going to sing a couple of verses of a song together, and then we're going to, during that time, ask our parents to pick up their kiddos and PBC kids, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. So would you stand with me as we sing about his great mercy? 